Father, we thank you for our time together in this book of the Bible, often ignored, often abused. We trust that we have dealt with it honestly and biblically and theologically. As we come to our final study, will you speak into our hearts, we pray? May we again hear your voice, a voice that's going to encourage us, a voice that's going to mean that we can stand and not fall, that we will be built up and that we can face living in a broken world as your people. Help us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So, our final study in the book of Revelation. I always feel a, a degree of sadness when we come to an end of a series, and I, I feel the same tonight. For six months now or more, we have wrestled with the truths of this great book, and I hope you have been blessed. I certainly have enjoyed it uh, more than not. Uh, it's been difficult, but I've been thoroughly blessed. The, the general message of the book is now finished. Really, what we have here is an epilogue. But this epilogue is, again, filled with essential truths, tremendous truths for us to hear. And I suppose we might say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Remember who the book was written to. Remember why it was written. The seven churches were the initial recipients of this book. But it's not just for them. It's for all churches in all places in all ages. And these churches in Asia Minor and all churches in all places in all ages share similar problems. That's why the book is for everyone all throughout the ages. False teachers, the temptation to give up and join in the world's sinful agenda, persecutions, weariness, weariness in the daily struggle of discipleship. That's been the same in every generation of believers, right from the early church, and will be until Jesus comes. So the book is here to warn us and to encourage us. I've often shared uh, what one preacher says about the two truths and the two responses. Truth number one, God rules. He has a plan to rescue and to judge. Remember that, the church is urged to do. Second truth, Jesus wins through the cross. Sin is paid for. A people bought for God, by God. Remember, Jesus will win. And the two responses, keep going, persevere right to the very end. And secondly, don't compromise. That's the second response. Obey him, love him. So tonight we're going to try and do two things. Pick out the highlights of the book of Revelation, the, the key so what's of the book, and then also to expound the text before us, uh, chapter 22, 6 to 21. That could mean a long, long, long sermon. So uh, I wrestled all week with uh, which order, because normally you, you, you expound the passage and then you bring the highlights at the end. But I'm going to turn that around tonight. We're going to start off with the highlights and then finish with... Uh, a briefer exposition of, of the passage. So these are the things that have stood out for me. I hope they've stood out for you too. 
Um, but please, if they haven't, then just indulge me, you know. Uh, I'm an old man, you know. And I get excited about Jesus. Have you got excited about Jesus as we've read this book? An exalted view of our Savior. It's all over the book, isn't it? The book is about him. And we see how great he is, how exalted he is in his ruling and in his authority and his sovereignty. Even in this last passage, and I, 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 I could go anywhere in the book, but just let me, for instance, quote verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These titles were used by God himself in chapter 1 and in chapter 21. Here, they're used by Jesus. He is God. He is God. The beginning and end of creation. The beginning and end of salvation. The beginning and end of revelation. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The root and offspring of David. Now, just don't let that go over the top of your head. Do you know what he's saying there? He is both the ancestor and the descendant of Jesus at the same time. Sorry, David's ancestor, David's descendant at the very same time. Nobody else could do that. So he's ruling up there in heaven. He's involved in human history and the human story down here on earth. He's the bright and morning star. That means the dark night of this world will end. He is the light, and he's, the light is rising in the, the morning the sky, and he's coming And that should fill us with hope and confidence. See, what we see here throughout this book is that Jesus is in control. Not us. And certainly not evil. Not evil. He is ruler, governor, master, judge. What I've seen in this book is an exalted view of Jesus. And of course, he's coming soon. We'll think about that later on. We're we're here for a very short period of time. How sad it is that we put so much of our energy, so much of our thinking into this short period of time that we're here when we've got all of eternity to enjoy with him and for him. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for him to preach and to proclaim his message, to present him to the nations, to be his representatives and to be his witnesses. And then a glorious eternal life with him for all his people, an exalted view of Jesus. Honestly, I'm sure I love him more now, having studied this book. Do you feel the same? And then the second thing about the church, a greater appreciation I meant to put in um, of his love for the church, because that's particularly what struck me. Yes, the church is elevated, um, and we're to appreciate uh, his body, the church, but it's his love for the church that struck me. Especially we saw that in chapters 2 and 3. You know the seven letters? And it was way back in June and July. It seems a long, long time ago when the sun used to shine and things like that. But I find it painful to see myself in those churches. Weak, lukewarm, compromising. It's not a pretty picture, was it? It's not a pretty picture of the church. And 
I'm in there and, and so are you. But he loves us all the same. And he has plans for us as a church. An absolutely wonderful future. Not what we deserve, but what his grace provides. Jesus died for his church. And his love is the only explanation for that. Why else would he do it? And nothing can take away that love. Nothing in time, nothing in eternity. His love for the church. Another thing is, is uh, having a biblical <clears throat> worldview that just sees things differently. I confess, and I speak perhaps to, to younger folk in the congregation tonight, I, I confess that there's, there's enough in this world to depress us and to cause us great doubt. Can God really be in charge when there seems to be such a mess in the world? Can he really be in charge? So much sin, so much evil, so much suffering, so much pain, so little good, so little truth, so little purity, so little love. So we need our imaginations expanded to see who really is in control, who really is in charge, and what he's doing. And that's what this book of Revelation does. He will bring all things to a conclusion. And for God's people, of course, it's a happy con conclusion. And they lived happily ever after. Yeah, that's going to be for us. God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, those saved and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So Revelation spells out what is happening and why and when and by whom. So we're not to be surprised or shocked. And we're not to give up or compromise. But we're to have a biblical worldview. We're to look at the world with a, a biblical worldview. And that means now when I watch the news, I don't get angry or upset. I just say, but we've been told about this. We know exactly what's going on. And we know who's in charge. Another thing that struck me is, is about sin and a timely warning about sin. Revelation reminds us who is the source of sin. It's the dragon, Satan himself. And what does he do? He uses beasts. Do you remember the beast of the sea, power, and the beast of the land, deception, and he uses the mother of all prostitutes, Babylon? What to do? To seduce us into sin. And yes, sin looks so attractive. It's so alluring. It appeals to our base self. So Satan knows exactly the bait that he needs to just float in front of our very eyes. And of course, even though we know what it's, what it's like, we know the purpose, we know the trap, what do we do? We bite. Sin is grotesque, it is disgusting, it destroys, it corrupts, it kills, it is idolatry, it is adultery, and it steals from us our meaning and our purpose. And it's never worth it. 
It's never worth it. Never worth it. Because it gets between us and him who is our Savior. The desire for sin is often our priority, isn't it? When our desire for him should be our priority. And then another highlight, and I think this is the last one, heaven, our bright hope for tomorrow. I think we need hope in a hopeless world, don't we? Yesterday at the funeral, we read from John 14, where Jesus said, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to be with me, so that you might be where I am. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's going to take us home. He will give his people eternal rest. Rest from this weary world. We don't talk enough about eternity. We don't think enough about heaven. Because we're so busy, wrapped up in what can I do now? What can I get now? How can I enjoy myself now? And we're the poorer for it. If you're miserable in your Christian life tonight, I reckon it's largely to do with the fact that you don't think about Jesus and you don't think about his eternal reward. There used to be an expression when I was a boy, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly use. Do you remember that? And of course then people used to say, well, it's really the other way around. He's so earthly minded, he's no heavenly use. And if that were true back 30 years ago, then it's truer, I think, today. But if we have a view of heaven, we will be hopeful, hope-filled. And when we're hope-filled, we will be useful for him and for his glory and for his honor. Revelation talks often and openly about heaven, our wonderful, eternally prepared home. Now, there's two other highlights that would have been, for me, worship and witness, but as they're going to come up in the text, we can, we can deal with those then. But these are the things, an exalted view of Jesus, a, a greater appreciation of the love of God or the love of Jesus for his church, his people, a clear understanding of how we're to see things, um, and a timely warning about sin and the bright hope of, uh, of, of heaven. We, we don't get, need to get all bogged down in the dilemmas and the, and the arguments about millenniums and here and there. And Hey, let's concentrate on the main things, which are the plain things. But the final portion of text is similar to um, Paul's epistles. And it appears fragmented. And when I started to read, I said, wow, wonderful. But how do you break this down? How, how do you bring things together? Um, there doesn't seem to be a structure, and yet I, I think there is. I, I really do think there is. And I, I think you can see verse 7 as a kind of a summary of this whole section. Behold, I am coming soon. And then secondly, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. First of all, 
Behold, I am coming soon. Three times this is said. Verse 7, which you already read. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. And then verse 20, Yes, I am coming soon. That was a great song, by the way, All Who Are Thirsty. We've sung that before, haven't we? Here? Yeah. I think it's great. It's a pity we couldn't have sung it twice. It was so good. So guess what? Who's coming? Oh, come on. Jesus is coming. And when is he coming? Soon. It's like one of those marches, you know. What do we want? When do we want it? I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> He's coming soon. Soon. Now, some of you are probably saying, hey, come on. This is written 2,000 years ago. I mean, how soon is soon? Well, soon. means that it's the next great event in God's diary. The next key event after the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The next big event is the coming of Jesus. That's why it's soon. The time will come. He will return. And it will be soon. Don't get confused with time, by the way. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Now, come on, you can work that out for yourselves. Since the ascension of Jesus, there's only really been like two days in God's timing. Do you know they talk about dog years? Time means something else to dog than it does to human. And for us, we have to think in terms of God's timing. He's not constrained by time and space the way we are. He's outside of time and space. And by the way, that's why on that last day of judgment, when there will be billions and billions and billions and billions of people being judged, we say, how is he going to do that? I can tell you why he's going to do it, because time and space will not mean what it does to us now. Jesus is speaking, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. This is my message, he's saying. I am coming soon. We might say, what is the big deal? He is the big deal. The focus of Revelation, as we said earlier, is on Jesus. Not man, not history, not evil, not theology, but Jesus and he's coming soon. And you better be ready. I better be ready. We need to live our lives in the view of his return. Now, imagine, and this won't happen, because we read it from 1 Thessalonians, but imagine if you knew next week he's going to return. You should be able to do exactly what you're prepared to do in the meantime, because you are ready. And what you had planned is part of the glory that you want to go to his name. And if you're not ready, then you better be ready. And you can be ready. By coming to the living water and drinking of Christ. It's going to be soon, it's going to be conclusive. That's really 11 to 17. We won't read all those verses again, but 
We'll read some of them as we go through it. Humanity is going to be divided, we're told. It's summed up, I think, in verse 11. There's really two sides here. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. That's your choice. Let, you can go on with that. But let him who does right continue to do right, and let him who is holy continue to be holy. Two ways, two choices. And by the way, if you think, I haven't made my choice yet. Yes, you have. Because you're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And those who are God's people will have access to the tree of life, will will enter the gates of the city, wonderful imagery of the wonder of salvation and eternal life, and enjoy the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And by the way, those who are not God's people will miss out on all God's prepared blessings, verse 15, outside. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's a bit like the flood, isn't it? There were those in the ark and those outside the ark. And he returns, he comes as a judge with rewards, verse 12. I know I'm jumping back and forth, but in many ways that's what we have to do. At least that's the way I'm doing it. Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I think that's a bit scary, is it not? Because there's lots of sin committed over the years. I was trying to work that out in my own life, even if I was very, very generous to myself. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of sins. Imagine if we combined all the sins of all the people in this congregation here tonight. Multi-millions of sins. And there would be no hope for us, except that the judge is Jesus. And he will wash away our sin, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And there's no reason for this except love, that grace, that undeserved love of God. We are the bride and our wedding dresses are filthy in our sin and yet he washes them clean so that we are presentable before him, pure and undefiled. And we're welcomed into the new heaven and the new earth, we have a right to the tree of life and to enter the city. Notice the invitation of verse 17. Because even towards the end of this book, we have again another invitation to those who are outside. The Spirit and the bride says, Come, whoever's thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes a free gift of the water of life. Not sure. Is the Spirit and the Bride speaking to Christ to come or to unsaved to come? But the second half, certainly, verse Thursday, let them take the free gift of the water life. And notice it's this, and the church, be clean. Are you thirsty for love, for purpose, for salvation? Come. Come to Jesus. 
And then it's certain, verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. No question marks, no ifs, no buts. Yes, I'm coming. And who's speaking? Well, it's Jesus, the faithful witness. Three questions before we move on uh, to the next section. Are you certain about the return of Jesus? Are you certain? Are you convinced? Or do you have doubts? Behold, I am coming. Second question, do you pray? Verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you pray that? Do you want him to come? Third question, are you ready? And do you show it by the way you live? Are you certain? Do you pray? Are you ready? Behold, I'm coming soon to warn us and to encourage us. Secondly, that's the second half of verse 7. Blesses he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. The, the idea dominates this passage of keeping. For, verse 6, for instance, you'll see that. These words are trustworthy and true. Verse 7, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And, and when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. Verse 9, I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and, and the brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 18 and 19, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes the words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. We haven't time to deal with all these, but let me just briefly mention 18 and 19. They're very important. Listen, do not abuse the word of God, whether it be the book of Revelation or any other book. Do not add to it. Do not take away from it. And one of the ways, of course, we can abuse this book, the book of Revelation, is ignore it. Don't do it, says God. He warns us. Deal with this book carefully. And if people heeded this, I think there'd be less arguing about this book. And a wee bit more of humility before it and living out the main themes of this book. Verse 6, let me read that. These words are trustworthy and true. Trustworthy means you can lean on it, you can bank on it. True means it's accurate. It's about like 2 Timothy 3.16. It's God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Keep the words. 
that are written in this book. The book of Revelation, and implied, of course, the rest of Scripture. Love the Word. Believe the Word. Know the Word. Do the Word. Ready people, people who are ready for His return. Keep the words. That's the point, I think. Ready people, keep the words of Scripture. Now, if you struggle to love and to believe and to know and to do the Word, maybe it's because you rarely think about the return of Jesus. You rarely think about His possible return. And that's why maybe you struggle with loving the Word. This can be displayed, this blessing can be displayed in the way we worship, verse 8 and 9. Um, because uh, when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel and showed them to me. But he said, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. If you're ready, you're keeping the word, you'll be able to do what the citizens of heaven already do, which is, of course... Worship. Not anything else, not anyone else, but worship is the proper response to God. Word-based, Scripture-based worship, worshiping His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, responding appropriately. Worship God. That's what ready people do. That's what people who really love the Word do. We don't love ourselves. We don't love idols. We don't love sin. In fact, Verse 11 tells us we stop sinning, but we certainly don't compromise with sin, but we be faithful to God in all situations. Don't bow down to the dragon. Don't adore the beasts. Don't be attracted to what they say. In church, at home, and in work, we worship him. It is what the ready people who are waiting for the coming one, do. They worship. You see, our number, the number one priority there should be our number one priority here, which is worship. And then our singing, and our praying, and our listening, and our obeying, and our doing, we worship. And if we do, we are blessed. The second thing, of course, blessed people do, keeping the words of the prophecy of this book is witness. I promise you we will get to these two, and here they are. Verse 10. It's sort of hidden away, perhaps, but I think it's very clear what John is being told and what we are being told. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near so whether we live or whether we die, we proclaim the message. We don't be ashamed of it. We, we don't seal it up. We share it because the time is short, we're told. The night will end soon. We are in the last moments. Think in terms of a thousand years being like a day and a day like a thousand years. So if Jesus is going to return in the next hundred years or two hundred years, that's only a matter of minutes. Maybe ours. Time is short. We need to treat time carefully. Opportunities to evangelize, to witness, to share the gospel. Can you think of 
And what we might be able to do in these next few years as individuals, as families, and as a church, think about that village lost and, and broken. So many sad people, so many people who do not know the gospel, do not love Jesus. Isn't there a door opened right beside us? We've got to make the most of every opportunity. Ready, people, waiting for the soon coming of Jesus. We'll do this. We will witness. Because the book is not sealed. The message is not sealed. It's open. We worship and we witness. God rules. Jesus wins. Keep going. Don't compromise. It's only possible, of course, by God's grace. And it's fitting that the last word of Revelation 21 is about grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. What does grace do? Well, grace does everything that's, that's good. <laughs> everything. Um, it justifies us. Grace adopts us. Grace preserves us. Grace equips us. Grace glorifies us. Grace brings us along life, brings us to heaven. Yesterday at the funeral of Mavis, we sang this great hymn. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far. Full stop? No. And grace will lead us home. Grace will lead us home. Grace to believe. Yeah. Belief is difficult. We can't do it in our own strength. We need the undeserved goodness of God. He enables us to believe. Grace to cry out, come Lord Jesus. In our own strength, we cannot say, come Lord Jesus, because we don't really want him to come. But it's grace that enables us to say, come Lord Jesus. Grace to keep all the words of this book. Grace to say no to sin. Grace to say yes to holiness. We can't do it. Grace to worship. Grace to witness. Grace to set our cold hearts ablaze. Grace to forgive when we fall. Grace to get us to the end. Grace to lead us home. For the lost, there's judgment and no grace. For the saved, there is judgment and grace. The difference is between heaven and hell. We read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and it's only when I read it that I suddenly realized here was the conclusion I was struggling to find all day. <laughs> For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, 
we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you're doing. He died so that we might live. He died, and he will lead us home. If you're a Christian, keep going. Don't compromise. If you're not a Christian tonight, then come to him and to faith in him, and he will lead you home. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have a, a wonderful future for your people. In the meantime, may we give ourselves to serving you here while on earth. We thank you that you are a great God. And in this Advent season, may we expect you, want you, love you, serve you, follow you, trust in you. All for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come thy long-expected Jesus is our closing hymn. Let's stand and sing.